As Brian's already mentioned, we're kicking off a, a new mini-series called Gospel Confidence. And um, I'm really excited about this series. I believe it's uh, a really one of the most important messages that we need to hear in the church today. And so uh, we spent some time thinking on these things as a court team, and we felt it was so important that we would preach this series again so that we can catch everyone up to speed on what we really believe about the transforming power of the gospel. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to be kind of jumping around the scriptures today. We're going to start at Matthew 16. So if you've got a Bible, you can go there. But all the verses will be up on the screen as we go. So let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that you are the God who addresses us in your word. And Father, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so this morning we pray, Father, that as we hear your promises to us in scripture, You would fill our hearts with faith and gospel confidence, gospel optimism about what you are doing and what you can do and will do in our city for your glory. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. I want to start off by asking you a question. I don't want a show of hands. I just want you to ponder this question in your heart and in your head. The question is this, when the gospel is preached... I expect that people will respond. When the gospel is preached, I expect people will become Christians and and get saved. Now, I asked that question to our core team when it was just about 30 of us, and I actually asked for a show of hands, and the audience went something like this. Maybe, like, there was this real sense of hesitation around the room, and my guess is that maybe the same for you. We hesitate when that question is asked. Why? Why? Well, maybe we hesitate because we're unsure of whether or not God has actually promised that. Has God promised that as the gospel is preached, people will respond? Is that a promise? Because you don't want to claim a promise God hasn't made, right? That That would be a problem. We want to cling to promises that God has made. Or maybe you hesitate because your experience is contrary to that. Maybe for you, your experience has been that you speak of Jesus, you share your story, you speak the gospel, and yet you see such little fruit from what you do. You know, some of the stats that have come out of one of the mainstream denominations in our city is that 78% of people come to faith in Jesus before the age of 18. And so what that means is that for most people who have come to anchor from a mainstream denominational church, your experience has been the last time you saw someone come to faith was back in youth group. And so we can have this idea that the gospel, yes, it's for teenagers, but it's not really for adults. And we end up losing confidence in the transforming power of the gospel. Or maybe you hesitate because as you think of this city, as you think of Sydney, you think, man, this is tough soil. This is a place where people perceive no need for Jesus whatsoever. Life is just way too comfortable. It's almost heaven on earth here in Sydney. The forces against the church are too strong. And so we can't expect that as the gospel is proclaimed, people will respond. Or or maybe, and I, I certainly hope this isn't you, but maybe you think that God doesn't actually want to save people. He doesn't want to bring them into his kingdom. If the gospel is proclaimed, can we expect that God will save people? There's a story of a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who had one of his students come to him and say, I've been preaching in this town for three months now without hearing any word of anyone coming to faith. And Spurgeon said to him, well, 
I mean, you don't expect that people will become Christians every time you preach, do you? And he said, well, no, of course not. And Spurgeon replied this, then that is just the reason why you haven't had them. When the gospel is preached, can we expect that Jesus would save people? My aim in the next three weeks and this morning is that we would all confidently be able to say, yes, there's a real sense of silence in this room. Is that, is that a heavy thing? My hope is at the end of this, it's not a heavy thing, it's a joyful thing. That we would repent of gospel pessimism and be filled with optimism and confidence that the gospel can radically transform lives. Now, I want at the end of three weeks that we could say, yes, 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 the gospel transforms lives. Not because of our gifts, not because of our strengths, not because we've got heaps of gifted evangelists or great preachers or a wonderful framework of explaining the gospel, not because of any of those things but that we would be confident about the gospel because of who God is, because of the nature of the gospel itself, because of the mission that God has started from Genesis chapter 1 that he will see come to completion of the transforming power of the gospel, of the presence of the Spirit to empower us for mission, that our confidence would lie in those things, not us, not our methods and strategy. We've spent a lot of time thinking and praying about how we get a church to to view their identity as missionaries in their everyday culture. How do we do that? And here is one of the convictions I have as we try and do that here at Anchor, because that's that's the core of our heart, in community, on mission. right? How do we do that? Here is a conviction that I have. You will never speak of the gospel if you have no confidence in the gospel. You will never speak the gospel if you have no confidence in the gospel. I remember a number of years ago applying for a job as a photocopy salesperson. Um, I figured I'd been in ministry for a while and I'd been selling something that was free that no one wanted. And so surely I could sell something that people wanted. But it was almost like photocopy sales was almost the same. Everyone has a photocopier. No one wants to buy a new one. And you're trying to sell something to people that, that don't really want it. And so I went for this job interview and this HR manager from Dakin Photocopiers was interviewing me. Honestly, the best job interview I've ever had. He asked very perceptive questions. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, have you got any questions? And I said, yeah, I've I've just got some questions about the, the quality of the product that I would sell. And I began to ask him about how their photocopiers rank in the scheme of others, where it's made, uh, quality parts used. Is there any sense of inbuilt obsolescence in these machines that we're trying to rip people off? And he, he said to me, you can't sell a product you don't believe in, can you? And I stopped and I thought, no, actually I can't. I can't sell a product that I have no confidence in. I can't knowingly go and sell a dodgy product to people. My conviction is, that you will never speak of Jesus if you lack confidence in the transforming power of the gospel. You know, sometimes for people who believe in such a wonderful transforming message, we're just a little bit too pessimistic about the gospel. And so today... What I want to do is I want to give you reasons for gospel confidence, for gospel optimism. I want to give you reasons, four promises that are made to us in the Scriptures because faith comes from hearing the Word of God. 
And so I want to walk through these four promises. And my hope is that it fills and stirs our spirits with wonderful gospel optimism. So this is the first promise. Promise number one is this. Jesus promises that he will build his church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 says this. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's important that we don't just pluck verses out of context and make them mean something that it didn't naturally mean when you read it in the verses before and afterwards. And so what is Jesus talking about here? A bit of context. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, what's the popular opinion about me, about who I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Jesus says to him, Peter, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but from my Father in heaven. And then he says, Matthew 16, 18, Then I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock is not Peter. It's what Peter has just done. It's his confession of Christ as Lord. On that confession, I will build my church. That's a promise. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will draw people to himself. Jesus will continue to seek and save the lost. Jesus will see that the name of the Father is glorified. He will build his church. Now, why does Jesus tell his disciples this? The very next couple of pages, as you flick over in Matthew's gospel, Jesus heads to the cross and there dies And he's buried. And he doesn't want his disciples to lose heart. He wants to fill them with confidence about the mission that he's called them to. And so he tells them, Brothers, I want to assure you that I will build my church. And I'm going to use you to do it. That's a promise. Not like a politician's pre-election promise that is kind of shaky. This is like a God promise, right? I will build my church. You know, for me, to be honest, that's an absolute relief. I don't know about you. Do you find that relieving? Jesus promises he will build his church. The church is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on the leaders and pastors. It's not dependent on missionaries. Jesus promises I will do it. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, I watered, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but... God gave the growth. God gave the growth. I will build my church. This is what Jesus does. The church is not building a building and, and putting a band in it. The church is people. Jesus' purpose here is to gather to himself a people that would worship the Father. I will build my church. You know what that means? It means that church planting, it means that being a church on mission is a very spiritual activity. We are co-laborers with Christ, working alongside Jesus as he builds his church. What a wonderful privilege that is, that we would be called to such a high task to build alongside Jesus. We plant someone else waters, but Jesus builds his church. He will do it. That ought to fill us with great confidence, friends. The King of Kings is building his church. Now, you notice also there that Jesus says, I will build my church. This is, this is his church. 
It's not my church. A number of times I've caught myself talking about anchor. I mean, I'm talking about my church. I'm like, kind of, kind of wish I could take those words back in because this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. It belongs to him. I never want to call anchor my church. Yes, God has entrusted this church to myself and the other leaders who would lead and future elders here to shepherd well. And yes, Jesus calls leaders in his church, but ultimately this belongs to him. That's why if you've seen any of our organizational charts, you'll notice at the very top we say the senior pastor of this church is Jesus because it belongs to him. Now that fills me with confidence. You know why? Jesus is way more committed to the church than I am. Way more committed. I mean, he went to the cross for his bride. Jesus promises to build his church. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. He also promises, in the second half of verse 18, that nothing will stop it. Check it out. Go back to verse 18, if we can have that verse back on the screen. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates here are a symbol of of strength and of defense. And the gates of hell are meant to, to keep the dead in their place. Death has power to restrain and hold people until the resurrection. When Jesus goes in behind those gates, finds the keys, comes out, bursts them open for all eternity, and says, all who have faith in me will be raised like me. Jesus saying nothing can stop the progress of the church. Not death, not even hell itself can prevail against the church. Jesus has conquered. He is victorious. The risen Lord promises that he will build. And friends, isn't history testimony to that fact that Jesus builds his church? I mean, you look at Acts chapter 2, there's 120 scared disciples in the upper room and 2015, over 2 billion people who would say that Jesus demands their worship in some way, shape, or form. Jesus builds his church. Nothing will prevail against it. Nothing. No economic downturn. No Islamic uprising. No secularization of culture. No government agency. No false teaching. No spiritual opposition, nothing will prevail against the church of Jesus. Because the king who is victorious is building his church. That's promise number one. I will build my church. Promise number two is this. I'm losing my voice because I'm getting a bit excited. Come on. All right, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. The second promise is this. The progress of the gospel is a certainty. Just after the resurrection, Jesus hangs out with his disciples and he gives them confidence again about the future that he's called them to. This is what it says. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. These things must happen. What are these things? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The point of of this passage is this, that the, the, the mission of the church, that, that God's global mission for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, that is as certain as the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 47 must take place in the same way that verse 46 must take place. The mission of God is as certain as the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me take you to a couple of scriptures. These aren't on the screen because I've added them a bit late. But Genesis chapter 12, we see glimpses of this all throughout the Old Testament, of the promises. You know, We know of the promises of Jesus' death and resurrection. Those are the ones we're familiar with. We've got all of those wonderful scriptures, Isaiah 56, Psalm 22, all of these promises about Jesus coming and laying down his life. But what about the promises that the gospel will go to all nations? Let's go to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. This is a promise to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a little glimmer that this plan of God is not just to remain solely with the people of Israel. Or let's go to Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28. This is what it says there. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It has always been God's plan that the good news of Jesus would go to the ends of the earth and include all of the nations in God's plan. God expects and God ensures that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. All you have to do is read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 starts by saying, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The gospel is to go out. The progress of the gospel is inevitable. It will happen. Now, the road isn't easy, and yes, people will reject the message, and yes, God's messengers, some of them will be killed, but the progress of the gospel itself is certain. That's one of the purposes of the book of Acts. Now, friends, as you just ponder those first two promises, Jesus will build his church. The progress of the gospel is certain. Doesn't that fill you with confidence? We could stop right there. Sermon done. right? Sermon done. I don't need anything more. Actually, I don't need anything more than Matthew 15, 8, to be honest with you. But we've got two promises that ought to fill us with gospel optimism and gospel confidence. But I want to give you more. Promise number three. Gospel progress is resourced. Gospel progress is resourced. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The certainty of the progress of the gospel is not dependent on the ability of God's people, but is dependent on the power that God provides to make that happen. Acts 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now you've got to ask this question. 
Why does Jesus tell the disciples to wait? They've just done a three-year ministry, intensive training, apprenticeship with him. Surely they're ready to go. They've seen it all. They've got the hands-on experience. But Jesus says, wait. Why wait? Because they lack something. They lack power. They lack power from the Spirit for mission. And so Jesus says, wait until you will receive power. Then you go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second. Twelve guys. Jesus says, you've got to take this message to the ends of the earth. They're like, hang on a sec, Jesus. I think your vision is just a little bit too big. Maybe you could just scale it down a bit because I feel like that's an insurmountable task that we will never be able to achieve. And it's true. In and of themselves, they would never be able to achieve that. But in the power of the Spirit... In God's sovereign hand as he scatters his people in the persecution of the Jews, the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises to build his church. Jesus promises that the progress of the gospel is certain. And Jesus resources his mission in pouring out his spirit. He gives them the great commission in Matthew 28. And then he gives them the power to see that come to fruition. This week, we've been doing some renovations on the office space that we've leased out over in Camperdown. And uh, we were told that the, the concrete slab underneath the carpet was painted gray. And all we had to do was rip up the carpet and it would look amazing. That hasn't been the case. We ripped up the carpet. We found raw concrete and adhesive that looks like it's been there for a century. That is, it's, it's like concrete. We've tried everything to get this stuff off the concrete. We've tried chemicals. We've been scrubbing this thing with acetone. We've tried machines like this machine that digs it up. We've tried diamond cutting discs. Nothing can get this stuff off the floor. We're, like, we're looking at this going, we should have left the carpet down. We should have left the carpet down. It's too late. Once you cut the carpet and rip it up, it's too late. Until we found this product called Beanie Doo. 95% soy oil and 5% something else. And literally you pour it down and you're supposed to just brush it on and squeegee it off. It's the miracle cure. Now as we look at this job that we have that we just cannot complete, we find a product that resources the, the, the job that we need. Right now... To be fair, it hasn't worked the way that the ad said it would. Very unfair. But the disciples receive this commission from Jesus that seems impossible until he pours out the Spirit on them. And the first time that Peter stands up to preach in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people get saved and like, ah, this can happen. Right? Gospel confidence. Now, why does that fill us, the disciples, with confidence? Why does the empowering of the Holy Spirit fill us with confidence? Well, what's the Spirit's role? Why has He been given? One of the purposes of the Spirit is that He would regenerate dead hearts, exactly what Brian introduced with Ezekiel 36. Take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. You know, when you speak of Jesus to your colleague, your neighbor, do you have any hope that your words alone could transform that person, could change their mind about Jesus? Never. But isn't it the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sin, to convict people of the righteousness of Jesus, to convict people that a judge is coming? That fills us with confidence that as we go about this mission, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that power is at work within us, drawing people to himself. That ought to fill us with confidence. 
Uh, sometimes on our day off, Tash and I will take the kids down to Darling Harbour or down at Pyramid Park at Piermont, and there are these really big steps that lead down to the water at both of those places. And Judah loves to bound down those steps. Now, his legs are about this long, right? So it's just not big enough for him to get down them, and he needs a bit of help. While I'm holding on to Judah, he launches himself off those steps. Why? He's got confidence that my grasp will hold him tight and help him down to the next step. Now, as soon as I let go, Judah does this, turns around, nappy bum in the air, and then shuffles and waddles down them backwards because he's got no confidence in his own ability to get down those stairs without me holding him. Friends, we ought to be filled with confidence that the Father has poured out the Spirit on his church. You know, sometimes our constant fear and worry about speaking of Jesus, sometimes that betrays the fact that we don't really believe in the power of the Spirit to transform lives. That we actually believe it's about us and our strategy and our framework and our winsome presentation. God has been convicting me on this for some time, if I'm honest with you. Because I find it very easy to stand at the front of church and preach the gospel. By and large, no one's coming back at me. No one's like, hey. you know." Now, to be fair, that happened a lot in youth ministry. People would yell out at me in the crowd. And, but that doesn't just happen in church. You guys are too polite. Maybe one day it will happen. But this is easy for me personally. It's easy for me to stand up here and preach the gospel and talk about Jesus. But sometimes I wonder, am I as bold in preaching Christ when I step out of the pulpit on Monday morning? God has been convicting me on that for some time. It's hard to preach sermons like this because, you know, you've got to change. My guess is it's no different for you to hear. We know we need to change. In the end, self-sufficiency is insufficiency. Self-sufficiently is utterly insufficient for the mission that Jesus has called us to. He has resourced this with the power of the Spirit. Jesus promises, I will build my church. Jesus promises that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus promises that he will pour out his spirit to resource that and make it happen. Well, let's go. A bit more. More gospel optimism. Promise number four is this. They will listen. Acts chapter 28 verse 28 says this. This is the closing chapter of the book of Acts. This is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And what? They might listen. No. They'll listen most of the time. No. They will listen. They will listen. That sounds pretty optimistic to me. Context here is that Paul has appealed to Caesar to hear his case and he's been taken to Rome and he gets to Rome and he calls the Jewish leaders in Rome, in the city of Rome together and he speaks about Jesus to them, the, the risen Jesus. And some of these Jewish leaders that sit there and listen to Paul preach, they hear the gospel and they respond, they believe, but others reject it. And then Paul quotes them that famous verse from Isaiah, though seeing you do not understand, though hearing it doesn't go in, you have no comprehension of this. And then he says, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Even if the Jews reject, they will listen. 
Why? Because it has always been God's plan that the good news of Jesus, that his glory, that worship of him would not just be confined to the ethnic race of Jewish people, but would burst open once Jesus came on the scenes to include every single nation, tribe, tongue, and voice under heaven. The gospel will go out. Jesus will build his church. The progress is certain. It is resourced. And the Gentiles will listen. I love the way that the book of Acts closes. It's important to pay attention to the closing verses of books and letters. They're intentional. And this is the way the book of Acts finishes. Some have pondered that maybe we've lost a bit at the end of the book of Acts and so we're missing the conclusion. But I think Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, has concluded this really intentionally. Let let me explain. Chapter 28, verse 30, the last two verses of the book. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense. This is Paul. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts closes on a very optimistic note. Very optimistic note. Bold preaching, unhindered preaching, people responding, the Gentiles listening. That is meant to set a tone and a trajectory for the whole book of Acts. If you think about how the book of Acts opened, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses, you'll proclaim this message in Jerusalem, then a little bit further out geographically in Judea, and then even further out in Samaria, you're going to cross an ethnic religious boundary there, but they're still kind of cousins of the Jews, and then the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. And then you get to the end of the book of Acts and exactly that has happened. Paul is in Rome, almost at the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. And Luke concludes like this to help us see that this is going to continue to happen. The name of Jesus will boldly be proclaimed and the nations will hear and come and respond. Unhindered gospel preaching. That ought to fill us with great confidence. You see the mission of God unfold in the book of Acts. The whole point, or one of the points of the book of Acts, is to show you that this gospel is unstoppable. Nothing can slow this gospel down. No persecution, no Roman ruler, nothing. So, should we expect that as the gospel is preached that as you speak the gospel, people will become Christians. People will get saved. People will respond. To them. Should we expect that? Yes. Absolutely yes, we should. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that every single time you open your mouth and utter the word Jesus, people are going to fall on their knees and worship him left, right, and center. That would be lovely. It's not beyond God to do that, but I'm not, that's what, not what I'm suggesting here. I'm not even suggesting that you are the one who gets to reap every time. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3? I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Someone else reaped in that scenario. And so you may sow and another may water and someone else gets to reap. But you've played a part in that process. You may just be one small voice in the larger choir that cries out, Jesus is Lord. So don't ever assume that God isn't using you. Even in the smallest of encounters, God can use your words. I love the story of a friend of mine, Grant, who, uh, as he shares his testimony, tells of how he was at the gym uh, fulfilling his sense of identity in his perfectly toned, tanked, and sculpted pectoral muscles. And um, 
Grant's a Maltese guy. He's, 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 fairly, he's fairly fit, let's just say that. He's at the gym. He's pumping iron. And this personal trainer comes up to him and says, Grant, you look like a good bloke. The Old Testament's this thick. The New Testament's this thick. You should read it. That was it. Grant went off, got a Bible, read it. And over the coming months and years, God radically transformed his life. Now, the guy, the personal trainer at the gym, had no idea until about 18 months later, Grant Rank tracked him down. He apparently got fired for talking about Jesus too much in the gym. But Grant managed to track him down through a cousin who had dated him. And there's lots of cousins in the Maltese families. They're big. So his cousin had dated him, tracked him, rang him up and said, Bro, I've been reading the Bible and I've changed. What has happened? And he's like, Well, I think you've become a Christian. He caught up with him. And just a couple of words. You look like a good bloke. The Old Testament's this thick. The New Testament's this thick. You should read it. And God took those words and used it to draw Grant to himself. So no, I'm not suggesting that you are the one who gets to reap every single time. But what I am suggesting is that you can't expect that God is going to be using you. That's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. You're not here to pursue your career Fulfill your dreams in your family, travel. I mean, all of those things are wonderful things, but you are here to make the name of Jesus famous. So I am suggesting that God is going to use you. My expectation this year is that people will come to know Jesus. People that you've just been praying for in your gospel communities, as you think about those people on your list of five that you want to be intentional about, some of those people will come to know Jesus this year. In fact, last year we saw that happen already. A number of people that you had been praying for came to faith. Someone in the first week of anchor became a Christian. I expect that this year we will be baptizing some of your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your family. I look forward to weeping tears of joy as you see your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister come to know Jesus. I look forward to seeing New Christians with their Bibles open, asking all of those inquisitive questions that you had. You remember those questions when you first became a Christian? You're like, hang on a second, Jesus can walk on water? I look forward to that, seeing that happen. I look forward to other churches around us maybe reaping where you have sown. You first shared Christ, they became a Christian, but they, they didn't come to anchor, they went to another church. Praise God. I look forward to thanking Jesus for what He has done he has done in building his church in this city. Now, I know that maybe there might be some of you here who are slightly skeptical thinking, well, hang on a sec, this just sounds like the power of positive thinking. Just believe it and it will happen. If you build a church, they will come kind of mentality. That is not what this is about. Gospel confidence is not the power of positive thinking. This is truth grounded in the scriptures on the promises that Jesus has made. I will build my church. The progress of the gospel is certain. The gospel is resourced. They will listen. I love what Steve Vassalo says. He says, expectancy is not the placebo effect. Gospel confidence is not the placebo effect. This is not believing something contrary to all of the evidence. The evidence suggests that we ought to be confident and optimistic about the gospel. Jesus will build his church. But you know, sometimes I think we, 
we just keep our expectation low because what we're trying to do is protect God from embarrassment. Like if I don't have to believe much, if I don't have to expect much of God, then when it doesn't happen, God doesn't have to look bad when he doesn't do it. That's not what gospel confidence does. Sometimes I think we blame the sovereignty of God for our lack of fruitfulness. Like, well, no one became a Christian for the last 10 years. God's sovereign. And we never stop to examine our methods. We never stop to think, is the message I'm speaking actually being heard in a language that the culture can understand? We blame the sovereignty of God for our lack of fruitfulness. Sometimes, sometimes I think that we feel that God has a shortage of grace. That his arm is too short to stretch out and save and bless. Have you found gospel pessimism creeping into your heart at all? I know I do. Friends, the promises that Jesus has laid out for, this, for us this morning ought to fill us with gospel optimism, with gospel confidence. And so maybe this morning, the job that you need to do is repent of gospel pessimism. Repent of the idea that you just think nothing will ever happen if I talk about Jesus in this city. And believe again that God can and does radically transform people. Why is it that new Christians seem to do the best job of sharing their faith? Why is that? You know why it is? One of the reasons is I reckon they, they remember the transforming power of the gospel. Like it happened last month, and so I'm going to tell everyone about what Jesus has done. And yet the longer we're Christians, the more that sense of the transforming power of the gospel wears off. And, or, or you get trained up in some method, and then you falsely believe that it's the method that saves and not Jesus. We need to come back. Come back and remember what it was like the first time that Jesus saved you. He took you when? When you're an enemy of Christ, far from Jesus. It's not like you helped him. You didn't contribute anything to Jesus drawing himself to you. Can he not do that with anyone he chooses? Of course he can. We need to go back. You know, this... This gospel that we need to be reminding ourselves of is the gospel that every single one of us has been created for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship God. And yet instead of worshiping God the way that He deserves, all of us have decided to worship other things, created things that are not worthy of our worship. In the end, if we're real, most of us worship ourselves we are the center of our own universe. I mean, the way that we drive betrays the fact that we believe that we're the center of the universe, does it not? I mean, we believe that we own the road and everyone should just get out of our way so that my drive to work can be quick, easy, and comfortable. And what happens is you've got a bunch of people all driving that believe the same thing and you get road rage and carnage and chaos. You know, the road is there to share, people. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. You're not God of the road. <laughs> but... But we believe, truly, we believe that we are gods and that people ought to worship us. Or we end up worshipping other people and hoping that that person or that career and that thing will fulfill the deepest desires and longings of our hearts and in the end they just let us down, they don't satisfy. That failure to worship the God that we're created to worship is what the scriptures call sin. And that sin breaks the heart of God, that his people would reject him. To deal with that, 
God sent the perfect worshiper, Jesus, who walked in faith every single day of his life, never disobeyed the Father, never chose to worship anything else but his Father. And in that cross, that perfect spotless lamb was laid down, nailed to that cross, his blood was shed and spilled out for the forgiveness of many. That those who have chosen to worship something else other than God would have their sins completely washed away. And that Jesus rises again to new life and pours out his spirit into our hearts to empower us to live in a new way. We are new creations, made new in Christ with his righteousness that the Father would now look upon us and say, this is my child and we are given a new desire to worship the Father again like we were originally intended to do. Friends, that is the gospel and that is the message that we believe is radically powerful to transform lives in this city. If you're here this morning and that's new to you, or maybe you've heard the gospel as you've been hanging around at Anchor for some time, and you realize that you've been living, worshiping other things, worshiping yourself, then maybe today is the day that you come back to Jesus and ask that he would give you a fresh start today. We would love to talk to you about that. Please, if that's you, come and chat to us. We'd love to pray a prayer with you about accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But for those of you who have believed that message, this morning we need to come back to it and remember again that it is the transforming power of the gospel that first wooed you to Jesus. It's the transforming power of the gospel that will keep you there. And it's the transforming power of the gospel that will radically transform this city. Do we believe that, church? Yes, we ought to. My hope is that Anchor would be a church that both in prayer and in proclamation has great expectation about what the gospel will do in this city. But my conviction is we will never even open our mouths if we do not have confidence in the gospel. Has the scripture stirred confidence in you this morning? I hope it has. We need to remember this, that the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, And the king of kings promises, I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. That is gospel confidence. That is gospel optimism. We're going to celebrate and remember this gospel in two ways now. We're going to do it by responding in worship of Jesus as we sing songs and praise. Such a wonderful privilege as God's people gather together to lift up the name of Jesus. We're going to do that. We're also going to celebrate this gospel by remembering it in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. To my right and left are two stations with bread and grape juice. And we invite you as your heart is ready to come forward during the next couple of songs and to dip the bread in the grape juice and eat it and remember the gospel. This meal does uh, shift our focus in a number of directions. One, it shifts our focus backwards as we remember the cross. Two, it shifts our focus sideways because as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim it until he returns. And three, this, this remembrance shifts our focus forwards that this meal is just a foretaste of the heavenly meal that lies ahead. So friends, as the band comes up and I pray, would you remember the gospel, this trance? 
transforming gospel. And on those grounds, remember the promise that Jesus says, I will build my church. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for your promises that you give us. Promises that build faith in us. And Lord, this morning we want to come and if there's any doubt in our hearts, if there's any unbelief, we pray that you would please, Father, help us to see that these promises that you give us fill us with gospel confidence. I pray for any here this morning, Father, who have not yet believed in Jesus, that the gospel would radically transform. And Father, would you remind us of these promises that, that Jesus promises to build his church, that you have planned that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, that you have resourced the mission and that the Gentiles will listen. Your people will listen. Father, send us out of here full of gospel optimism, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people said, Amen.